This is Rohan Advani, and you're listening to the TCF World Podcast. From the armored vehicles policing the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, to the firing of tear gas on the U.S.-Mexico border, there is a sense that the militarization of the police is an alarming issue. Some have tried to connect these pernicious trends to U.S. policy in the Middle East, noting how militarism abroad can lead to repression at home. Central to this story is the role of the burgeoning Israeli security industry, which has conducted extensive training of police departments in the U.S., exports billions of dollars of security products annually, and regularly boasts about how its products have been, quote, tried and tested. To talk about the globalizing efforts of the Israeli security industry, I'm joined today by Shimrit Lee. She's a curator, writer, and educator based in Brooklyn, and is currently completing a PhD in Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at New York University, where she's examining the marketing techniques of this industry. Great to have you on the podcast, Shimri. Thank you for having me. First, could you provide a brief history of the Israeli security industry and how it relates to the United States? Israel is currently one of the leading exporters of defense in terms of both technologies of war and expertise. Um, according to figures published by the Israel Ministry of Defense, Israel's defense exports in 2017 reached $9.2 billion, a 40% increase from 2016. Of course, that wasn't always the case. Um, during the pre-state era, before Israel was founded in 1948, a number of underground Jewish militias operated, the largest of which was the Haganah. Um, and the Haganah initially smuggled in most of the light weaponry, or they produced ammunition in underground bunkers. The role of these early defense industries was to contribute to the armed struggle, initially against local Arab inhabitants who revolted against the Jewish immigration and land acquisition, um, particularly in 1936, then against the British administration, and finally against the regular Arab armed forces intervention in the 1948 war which saw the creation of the State of Israel, alongside the expulsion of 800,000 Palestinians and the destruction of over 500 villages, what's often referred to as the Nakba, or the catastrophe. After 1948, the new state began overhauling and upgrading scrap weaponry from World War II, which resulted in a number of export successes. You might have heard of the Uzi submachine gun, sure, for yeah. example. Um, Israel was taken seriously enough as a military power that in June 1956, France provided it with a massive shipment of modern armaments in return for Israeli participation in the planned joint attack on Egypt, um, the Suez Crisis. Um, however, the main impetus for Israel's launch of its military industry came in the wake of the June 1967 war, in which Israel occupied the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, and the Sinai Peninsula. And it was during this time that France imposed an arms embargo on Israel, mostly because France was trying to seek renewed influence in the Middle East after the decolonization of Algeria. Um, and the French embargo, while originally a huge blow for Israel, ultimately gave Israel the push it needed to develop its own arms industry and shift to the next and current hegemonic protector, the U.S., um, in 1970, the U.S. signed an agreement with Israel that represented the greatest transfer of U.S. technology to any other country ever undertaken. It was a massive giveaway of American military technology. And these kinds of packages were given to Israel over the next eight years. So by 1981, Israel had emerged from being this technologically backward, largely underground arms importer of modern weapons to the seventh largest exporter of military weapons in the world. 
If 1967 was so pivotal, what explains some of the current successes and continued growth of the Israeli security industry? Is it simply dependent on U.S. aid? Well, U.S. aid, military aid, is a large part of it. Um, In 2016, the U.S. pledged $38 billion in a 10-year defense package that would go towards Israel. In fact, the U.S. effectively provides a subsidy to the Israeli weapons business. While about 75% of this U.S. military aid package must be spent on American weapons, 25% can be spent on domestic Israeli research, development, and production of advanced weapon systems. That's a situation unique to Israel. Um, But besides from that, many scholars talk about what's often referred to as the revolving door between the military and defense industry in Israel. Mm -hmm. As you might know, everyone in Israel must serve in the military and... um, there's a huge turnaround between former military officers in the so-called old boys club of the Israeli defense forces um, who then pass from the military into these fancy executive roles in arms companies. And likewise, elite retired members of the defense establishment often receive government positions and set priorities regarding Israel's national security, forming this military industrial complex overseen by the state. There's also a sort of revolving door between civilian and military technologies. Israel is often referred to as the Silicon Wadi because it's this hub (laughs) of high-tech technology. um, And many of these technologies are used in the civilian sectors and hospitals, gated communities, retail. But most of the time, they're developed in a military context. And finally, I would point to what's referred to as the laboratory thesis, which is what my research is about And this is an oft-cited critique from the left, mainly, which posits that Israeli security forces' ability to experiment through ongoing warfare and occupation has facilitated Israel's rise as a major global exporter of advanced weaponry, security know-how, and technology. And the West Bank and Gaza Strip serve as a unique laboratory for physical enclosure and real-life testing of technologies and ideas related to asymmetric warfare. And the, are they quite open about, you know, saying that this that they, these products have been tested and that they've been used in real-life contexts? Absolutely. Um, through my research, I've visited a number of arms expositions in Israel and in France as well. And I was surprised to see that this is often a flaunted stamp of approval, this so-called combat tested. I would say that the West Bank and Gaza Strip are often not explicitly referred to, but they do flaunt the idea that because of Israel's experience with ongoing war, this serves as um, a an asset rather than a burden. Right. So it gives it some sort of sense of legitimacy in in these uh, in the eyes of this in this sector. Um, so could you maybe talk about what are the kind of weapon systems that are coming from this quote unquote laboratory? The type of expertise that has been developed in the occupied territories is one of high tech surveillance and control, including homeland security technologies in the areas of sensors information gathering, image enhancement, high-speed image analysis, and so on. Um, The aftermath of September 11 um, in 2001 put Israeli homeland security companies on the world stage, and Israel's private security market expanded rapidly, especially with the 2003 war in Iraq and the beginning of the so-called war on terror. Um, The products most in global demand after 9-11 included those that enabled surveillance and control over civilian populations. So this includes drone warfare, 
Israel currently tops the global market for unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs. And since the mid-80s, Israel has supplied over 60% of the world's drones. This also includes border technologies. Um, We've seen a recent back and forth with Trump and Netanyahu praising each other's walls. But much of what Israel does is more than physical walls. It's also so-called smart walls, um, ground radars, electromagnetic sensors, and underground barriers. It also involves techniques of urban warfare and the militarized policing of any sort of dissent. Um, You mentioned the 1033 program in the U.S., which points to this increasing trend of militarized policing. Mm -hmm. And much of that involves crowd control weapons, um, what's known in the industry as non-lethal or less than lethal weapons used to suppress nonviolent protests. This includes tear gas, electrical stun technologies, rubber bullets, um, what's known as the skunk, which is a foul-smelling liquid sprayed onto protesters um, on truck-mounted water cannons, and the scream, which is an acoustic system that creates sound levels that are unbearable to humans. So it's it's really, uh, in the context of the quote-unquote war on terror, it's taken advantage of the fact that there's been a shift towards unconventional warfare and it sort of positions itself um, quite prominently in that regard, and also in terms of like a riot and quote-unquote management of, of populations. And I, I should note, actually, that while much of this industry is bolstered by U.S. support, um, and we've been talking about how we've seen these kind of weapons used on in America in the context of Standing Rock and Ferguson, um, as of 2018, Israel has shifted its distribution of exports to the global south. It is not a coincidence that two of Israel's biggest customers are Brazil and India, both countries defined by extreme inequality and prolonged asymmetric conflict. This is the kind of conflict that Israel specializes in through technologies such as these. Right. So it's really been able to globalize this industry. In your research, though, you've said that the laboratory framework kind of privileges Israel to a unique position of authority, and it sort of glosses over the ongoing work, right? The constant work that goes in um, into the industry by the industry uh, in, in trying to grow. Could you could you explain this a little more? These laboratory critiques are essential to an understanding of the rise of Israel's security industry. However, that being said, I think there are some cracks in the thesis if you dig a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. First of all, not all forms of experimentation carried out in Israel-Palestine Um, concern the development of specifically Israeli security solutions. Like what? From a historical point of view, many of the strategies of control used on the Palestinian population originated in other colonial or counterinsurgency contexts. We can look at France's involvement in in Algeria, the British in Northern Ireland, and the American involvement in the Vietnam War, for example. Um, Palestine is just one node in this transnational network of personnel, expertise, and technologies of control. Second, many control strategies and technologies used in Palestine do not originate there. For example, the use of um, American manufactured tear gas in the West Bank. Third, the laboratory thesis often takes for granted the privilege given to a uniquely Israeli position of authority, which is written about as a natural outgrowth of the country's militarism or experience with warfare and occupation. In my research, I investigate the labor of marketing the Israeli security industry to global audiences. 
And part of that labor involves Israeli security companies retrofitting their products and services to the requirements of international clientele. And while I set out on this research expecting to find a very strong presence of Israel branding, for example, that these technologies are tested and tried on populations and that Israel is a unique startup nation, I often found the opposite, that Israeli security companies use marketing to situate themselves as fulfilling a conventional global need. Right. Yeah. I was actually kind of surprised by this when I was reading your research in that in political discourse in America, especially when when there's talk about Israel, it's always in very exceptional terms, right? Whether it be the only democracy in the Middle East or a special relationship, right? And this is actually shared both by the right and the left. Um, But you say, as you said just now, that you find Israeli companies prefer to market non-lethal weapons by placing them within a hyper-reality which is depoliticized and deliberately ambiguous. So sort of decontextualized um, and, and, uh, you know, the experience of Israel might be um, not emphasized in the ways that we would have expected. why is this the case? And, and, and could you talk about some of the marketing techniques that they do use? As you mentioned, this term hyper-reality, which I draw upon, meaning a blending between reality and fiction to the point where it's not clear where one begins and the other ends. And I see this a lot in promotional videos from Israeli crowd control technologies, for example. So you'll have footage from a protest that's taking place in the West Bank, but then all of a sudden the camera will pan to a different protest in Paris and Ukraine and Germany and the US, as well as to simulated protests at defense expositions in which the protesters are paid actors. So there's this creation of a hyper-real stock image in a sense. And I argue that by creating this bizarre blend, Israeli companies ultimately do two things. First, they can present their own military occupation as a tactical problem that can be solved with tactical military solutions, rather than taking these protesters' political demands seriously. And secondly, they manufacture a sense of global and pervasive instability, this protest stock image whereby protests can be dealt with in the same way across any global context, therefore ensuring the mobility of these products to other protest situations Um, like a one-solution-fits-all kind of thing. These stock images collapse threats. In many of these simulations I attended, um, the represented threat could be a common criminal, a drug lord, a terrorist, a civilian protester. It didn't matter because the same weapons could be used against all of them. So this works not only to blur internal dissent with criminality. It's also a way for these companies to cross-market their products Mm -hmm. to an increasingly militarized police force, for example. What can be done to protect civilians in Syria's Idlib province? A Century Foundation report explores policy options for promoting diplomatic resolutions to one of the last unresolved hotspots in the Syrian war. To read this and other TCF research into the Syrian conflict, go to our website, tcf.org, and look for the Syria tab under World. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. Shimrit, it seems as if they're marketing their products as almost completely apolitical. 
as if the products are to be used for a natural disaster. Is that correct? Absolutely. And what's really fascinating is that if you look on the websites of mm -hmm. many of these companies, along as part of the PR materials, you'll also see guides with how best to use um, these so-called products. Um, and this is part of another trend that I've noted in my research, which is technologies of war being sold as ethical or humanitarian, oh. um, kind of fitting into a longer history of imperial policing in which these products need to be used according to certain legal guides. Um, of course, that isn't the case in the field. And sure. even though these guides try to tell you how to use these in an ethical way, many of these non-lethal weapons have resulted in fatal injuries. And is there is there even an attempt to make them like environmental, like environmentally green? Absolutely. For example, the skunk, which is the foul-smelling liquid that yeah. sticks to your skin, is often marketed as organic and even edible. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's called, you know, I call it the greening of, of weaponry. And, and I also was thinking, you know, you were talking about how it's kind of a one solution to many different problems. Is that a way then also to connect the quote unquote war on terrorism to the war on crime to the war on drugs? Yes, I think these terms all fit together in some ways because mm -hmm. they imply this perpetual project yeah. um, that could happen anywhere on the planet with no clear uh, beginning or end. And I think that this idea that these large undefined wars, such as the war on terror, can be solved with military or technological solutions is reflected in many of the promotional materials that I analyze. On the one hand, some promotional materials blend together all of these protests and mm -hmm. risks. In other cases, they take out the human altogether. We see this in fake military training sites that exist both in Israel and the U.S. We see this in promotional videos that show you simulated Arab villages with no humans. Mm -hmm. And the point of this is to spotlight the technology, in a sense, and what it is capable of. It's a type of fetishism. Mm. And I call this the iPhoneization of weaponry, whereby weapons are sold as if they are the latest Apple product. They're sold with Wi-Fi capabilities, they're lightweight, they're easy to use, and they're smart. So there's this focus on the weapon as being able to solve any and all political problems. And it creates a sort of hype around it as well, right? There's like anticipation of like what the next new product is. Absolutely. Um, Shimri, you know, what what has united the um, Israeli security sector with the broader global security sector has also served to unite various forms of various populations who have been resisting these technologies. Um, so for example, I think you noted that some Palestinians were offering tips to protesters in Ferguson about how to deal with the tear gas because it was the same tear gas that was being used there. Could you talk a little bit more about this and what this means in terms of these new forms of solidarity? Yes. Protesters in Ferguson and the West Bank, as you noted, were trading tips on how best to deal with tear gas. Um, I also 
identify this genre of photography that is emerging from protests in which protesters hold up tear gas canisters. Um, Their faces usually aren't even visible because the main point of the photograph is the text on the canister displaying the name and location of the manufacturer. So this not only tells us about the transnational circulation of these products, it also serves as a form of visual accountability. For example, France banned the export of all riot control products to Bahrain in 2011, yet French tear gas canisters later surfaced in Bahrain, even after the ban went into effect. And these canisters are notorious for killing protesters. Um, And I think groups like Jewish Voice for Peace and Who Profits are increasingly drawing attention to the devastating effects of these transnational connections. So even though that these products might be banned or are not allowed to be sold, and they still do, it's actually these the civilian group who are participating in accountability uh, rather than the governments or the corporations who stand to benefit from them. Yes. I would also say that these forms of solidarity, for example, in the photos or in the tweets back and forward, are also actively transforming the security industry. Rather than Israeli forces introducing new security innovations to cement control over Palestinians in this one-way process, it is now Palestinians who are introducing new modes of resistance. For example, homemade rockets, incendiary kites, and balloons, and the introduction of various tactics to attract media attention. And it is the Israeli security forces that must scramble to develop technologies to contain them. For example, in response to protesters picking up launched tear gas canisters from the street and throwing them back to police lines, one Israeli company began offering a special tear gas canister designed to combat this so-called throwback phenomenon. Um, Protesters on Twitter are not only expressing solidarity via tips on how to deal with tear gas with onions or milk, um, they're also sharing these resistance techniques And the security companies, while clearly more powerful than these people, are nevertheless having to adapt. It's not just a one-way street, right? So so the security industry constantly has to adapt. It also feels like, although it's trying to project and promote security, it also seems to be quite insecure and vulnerable, right? You, I mean, if anything, uh, the police you know, which is quite militarized, don't even look like humans. Could you talk about why, you know, what is the state of vulnerability and insecurity that the security industry uh, feels? Is it like, is it something that's like pathological? I think the word vulnerability is interesting here because many of these protests, specifically in a Palestinian context, are coming from populations who are extremely vulnerable um, in terms of lack of access to resources, vulnerability to violence, lack of freedom of movement. And yet what's interesting is that these security industries are appropriating this language of vulnerability, um, what can be called the vulnerable warrior, for example, Mm -hmm. showing how they're both extremely combat ready and powerful, yet portray themselves as vulnerable. You'll see officers covered head to toe in protective material, armored vehicles on the streets of Ferguson, for example. And this is the kind of vulnerability that they need to project in order to perpetuate the project of the militarization of police. But when when we see these images, when, when a sort of lay person see these images of police dressed up, you know, almost looking like stormtroopers, um, 
that doesn't seem to me to bode too well for the security forces. I mean, don't aren't they concerned about their own perception that they're looking too militarized, that they don't look civilian enough? I think they try to keep dual narratives going at the same time. In a sense, um, they're both seen or projected as under siege, yet invincible at the same time. For example, I did some research into Safari Land, which is a U.S.-based um, non-lethal technology company, and they have a whole page called The Officers Saved, where they do profiles of officers whose lives were saved because of these products. And yet we see Safari Land products used against migrants trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border or used on Palestinian protesters or at Standing Rock. So we have this very confusing narrative where these products are used against actual vulnerable people, and yet the promotional material coming out of companies like Safari Land claim this type of vulnerability. So it's contradictory in a sense. I definitely agree. Shimmer, I also want to ask you, you know, on this topic, why should liberals, progressives, people on the left here in the United States, but also in the Middle East and all over the world, as you say, this is uh, a global industry. Why should they be concerned about what happens in the Israeli security industry? I mean, what does it mean for domestic policy here? Uh, and what does it mean for the United States relationship with the Middle East? The U.S.-Israel relationship is a hot topic right now across the political spectrum, but especially on the left, as we've seen recently with Ilhan Omar's comments about APAC. And a central aspect of debating that relationship is understanding the full extent of it. And so much of that relationship has to do with the security industry. It's an arena that's not getting enough attention in that debate, in my opinion. And I think part of that is the increasing privatization of the defense industry, which almost tries to separate itself from the state. And I think even not incorporating state narratives or state branding is a part of that. They also try to present themselves as high-tech companies serving the civilian sector. So we need to pay attention to how these companies operate both in non-military and in military settings. And that's a lot harder to do, right? I mean, there was... Uh, people paid attention to Blackwater when that was exposed, but that was in a very highly militarized context of, uh, you know, the, the war in Iraq. Um, but but what about what about in, in, in non-military context? I was thinking about Google's project Maven, in which Google technologies for AI could be then used in militarized contexts to make drone strikes a smoother process and how Google employees actually um, revolted against this to the point where they needed to cancel this project. And recently, we've seen this at the Whitney Museum here in New York. Um, one of the board members of the Whitney is the owner of Safari Land, the tear gas company that I mentioned earlier. And 100 staff members of the Whitney wrote a letter demanding that Warren Canders be taken off of the board. We need to pay attention to when certain technologies or programs are celebrated as innovative or progressive and really interrogate that more. Right. Yeah, I think that, that that's obviously a much harder thing to do um, 
as you talk about, I mean, it's it's put in such neutral language. I guess it's it's really great to hear that there are people who are working on that, um, who are trying to, uh, you know, take apart this relationship and show the corporate complicity in, in all of this. So while we would like in an ideal world for Americans to really care about what their government does overseas, um, sometimes that's just either not possible or it's just not happening. But it really does matter, not just for the people in uh, abroad, of course, but for Americans here at home. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, there was talk about the colonial boomerang, you know, some of the techniques that were used abroad that came back home. I mean, does that still persist today? Israel, I would say, is a leader in the domestication of counterinsurgency that portrays internal dissent as insurgency or terrorism. And we do see this paradigm come home in the U.S. with the militarized policing of African-American protesters, the monitoring of American mosques and targeting of American Muslims, and the demonization of Mexican-Americans and Hispanics. Big and small cities across America amassing counterinsurgency military equipment and know-how and deploying those strategies in routine encounters, not only to fight terrorism, but also as an integral part of their day-to-day policing. If the marketing tropes promoted by the Israeli security industry are taken to be normal, this type of violence will also be as well. On that note, I want to say thank you, Shimrit, for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.